proceeding from the great commission given by Jesus to make disciples of all nations, the early church exploded and countless souls were made new by the atoning work of Christ. Dead hearts were made alive and churches sprouted up throughout the world. As a need for clear and concise biblical interpretation arose, the Reformed Confessions of the Faith were written and still have a major impact on the church today. The Confessional Collective desires to see healthy, theologically sound churches planted and on mission for the Kingdom of Christ. Welcome to the Confessional Collective. Welcome to the Confessional Collective, where truth meets mission. My name is Aaron Carr, and I'm your host, as well as the pastor at First Presbyterian Church of Trenton, Michigan. The Collective is a band of confessing pastors, planters, and churchmen, and each week we have a confessional brother come share their wisdom and experience. In today's podcast, we have pastor and professor, as well as author, Mark Jones. Mark, how you doing? Doing very well, thanks. Mark, could you give our listeners just a quick 30-second bio of who you are and what you've been up to? Well, the most important thing about me is that I belong to Christ and that uh, I serve Him, and in the context in which I serve him, I serve him as a pastor primarily and uh, have a few hobbies on the side, such as writing and teaching. I'm a family man with four kids, a wife, and live in Vancouver, British Columbia. And my uh, guilty pleasure is uh, watching my kids play soccer and supporting uh, Liverpool FC in the English Premier League. Well, there we go. I am a... Uh... I'm a Manchester City fan myself, as most of my relatives are over there, so I can at least appreciate your love for soccer. And okay. uh, one of the questions for you uh, is: being Canadian, are there very many Reformed Canadians over there? Uh, Reformed Canadians, it's kind of it depends how you want to define uh, Reformed, but uh, there's certainly a lot of Dutch reformed style churches in Canada. Uh, so my kids go to a Canadian reform school, which is a very um, sort of Dutch in ethnicity. But in terms of just reformed churches, uh, I would say Canada, definitely it's not a strong aspect of our um, church situation right now. But I think there's definitely uh, more and more churches growing uh, and taking on a, a sort of reformed theology in its broadest sense. Regarding the journey into Reformed faith, what was your journey like, and how did you end up being classified as a Reformed theologian? Uh, well, that's interesting. I was converted at university listening to taped sermons, and I told my dad what I believed, and he said, oh, that sounds like John Calvin. So I read John Calvin and agreed that uh, that was what I believed. So it just sort of came uh, to me as the sort of logical uh, conclusion that God saves sinners and that there was no way I could have saved myself. So from then on, I, I began to read and just came into contact with various people, um, a Reformed church, and uh, from then on just kept reading and reading and reading and um, trying to develop my own way of uh, thinking about certain things. And then, you know, further education and all that sort of uh, trimmed off the rough edges that had uh, certainly been present very early on. In the early years, who would you say were some of those key uh, players in your development as far as Reformed theology? Well, there's there's men who uh, sermons in South Africa I listen to, and they are connected with a seminary where I teach in South Africa. Uh, there were books uh, in terms of reading Calvin's Institutes or reading the Puritans, such as John Owen. Um, and then there were just friends who, while not 
really theologians. They were reformed and just gave me probably uh, an understanding of the culture of what it means to be a, a reformed Christian, you know, hospitality, taking the Lord's Day seriously, um, Christianity being a part of my life, not just uh, a morning on Sunday. So, it, you know, it's kind of the whole package of of reading, of teaching and, and community. Now, if you had to be uh, very specific here and have to answer this question, I, I ask all of our uh, all of our guests, who is your favorite old dead guy? Favorite old dead guy. Well, that's uh, that's tricky, but I, you know, I suppose it'd be a toss-up between Thomas Goodwin and John Owen for um, who I'd like to probably meet or uh, who I envisage reading for the rest of my life. Wow, is there some specific from either one of those gentlemen that really was uh, y- your favorite? Yeah, you know, I, I, for me, I think it would be uh, a case of. Um, I studied Goodwin for my PhD, and he wrote a book called The Heart of Christ in Heaven Towards Sinners on Earth, and that really changed the way I thought about Christology and Christ. So I owe him a lot. Owen, you know, I, I owe in terms of he just basically on, on every issue I read, he's he's superb, and, and you learn something new every time you go back, and you, you can really never exhaust that man's thinking. He truly was the giant. So... Goodwin's much more personal, but Owen, uh, in a sense, has done probably the most for me theologically. I know with Owen that you truly can't exhaust him because it seems like a sentence would run on and on for pages, but the thought was just profound. I found myself just really captured by by John Owen. Yeah. Uh, who? What about, let's turn to more modern authors. Is there a, a modern author or theologian that regularly punches you in the gut and kind of encourages you uh, in conviction or uh, stimulates you in thought that you would suggest for our listeners? I really enjoy reading J.I. Packer because his prose is just so beautiful. It's rare to come across someone who writes with such, you know, ease and his sentences seem to be carefully chosen, each one. Uh, So, you know, J.I. Packer is certainly a, a modern author uh, Richard Gaffin has been quite influential on me in some of his more theological, well, all of his work is theological, but uh, just certain works where I feel as though I, I can really learn something from his rigorous analysis of the text. And uh, so I've been very grateful for Richard Gaffin, J.I. Packer. And fortunately, both of them have become uh, friends over the course of my life. So it's 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 probably enhanced their writings, if you kind of understand that, that when you get to know someone, uh, you also appreciate their writing uh, a lot more. Now, you are a pastor as well as a professor, and I want you to talk about each of those. Um, let's talk for a few minutes about your church and your uh, specific calling to that church. Now, you're of the PCA, Presbyterian Church in America, yet you're in Canada. And uh, would you explain a little bit of the relationship there? Well, I'm uh, I. I'm a pastor first and foremost. So whenever I think of, uh, you know, what is it that I actually do? I I think of myself as a pastor, you know, preaching is a calling to which I I believe fully that I'm called to. Uh, I serve in a church that I very much love and uh, think I have, you know, the best uh, calling in the world, the greatest calling. So, you know, my my sort of 80% of my life, I would say is uh, pastoring. And then Fortunately, the church 
is of the view that the kingdom is is a big kingdom and there's certain giftings uh, that possibly I have for teaching or writing and they encourage me uh, within reason to travel to various countries to teach uh, at seminaries or at churches uh, on topics that I've done some uh, reading in. What particularly um, areas do you teach or uh, I guess you'd say the the area of your focus as far as when you're when you're uh, when you're giving lecture. Usually, it's on the doctrine of God or Christology. Those are the two areas that I that I've done the most work. I have taught courses on uh, ethics, on biblical theology, on soteriology. Uh, depending on where you go, you, you probably don't need as much expertise in some countries as you would if I were to teach at, say, Westminster or an RTS. So a lot of it just depends on context. Uh, but most of the time I'm, I'm teaching on uh, Christology because I think that's probably where most people uh, need to have their thinking realigned with what I, what I think is the, the scriptural view of Christ. Is there a specific topic on the doctrine of Christ that you're most passionate about? I think it's just kind of um, understanding the relationship uh, between Christ's uh, humanity, uh, you know, trying to figure out uh, certain questions that we have to ask of Christ if we really believe he is truly man and, and all that that means. So I, I, wanted, I want people to really appreciate his obedience for us. I want them to appreciate his death and all that that meant for him and his humanity. And I think we we sometimes shy away from asking those difficult questions. So those are some of the areas I've tried to focus on. Now, I noticed that you stress that you're a pastor first. How yeah. does the focus of the classroom, the the doctrine of Christ, how do you see that impacting you uh, your past your your pastoral duties? It's a bit of give and take. You know, the classroom is a place where I end up learning as I teach in some ways. It's also a place where, unlike a sermon, students get to ask questions and you learn a lot about where people are at, where um, people are weak, where they're strong. And so the classroom really helps me to go back to the church and understand you know, that concepts take a very long time to settle in and so if that's the case with students it's certainly going to be the case with people in the pew so you have to learn to say things in an interesting way but probably over and over again not assuming that everyone gets it the first second or third time now you are a presbyterian minister so i'm assuming that you are a uh, um, you subscribe obviously to the westminster confession of faith just for a few moments, let's talk about your view of subscription and how you work that out in, in the sense of how you're understanding what it means to subscribe. Yeah, that's, uh, that's always a tricky question just because of context and, and what one means by certain terms. You know, I, I believe in uh, Reformed diversity, but my understanding of Reformed diversity might, might be quite different from someone else uh, who believes in Reformed diversity. So... You know, I, I like um, the confessions because I think they do address um, diverse issues and come up with statements that uh, can include quite a few subtly different views. But uh, there, there comes a point where people try to push the, the envelope, so to speak, a little too far from my liking. And that's where I have to say that, you know, I think the confessions 
really guide us on the appropriate boundaries for Reformed orthodoxy. Mm. In your church, um, how do you go about training your elders in in the Westminster Confession? I know that's a typical discussion that I'm finding among um, the, 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 the pastors, the teaching elders, in regard to raising up ruling elders. Is there a certain class you use, certain books you use, or is it just uh, a regular indoctrination that comes from the pulpit? Yeah, you know, it's p- probably a case of, of getting people to believe the, the truths of the confession out of the text of Scripture as much as getting them to read the confession. So, you know, faithful preaching of the Word of God, people should in a way come to the confession and it shouldn't be like a, a total shock to them. Mm. They should be coming to read the confession as we get our elders in training and, and deacons in training uh, to do, but they come to the confession, and it, and it should, in a in a sense, just fall into place because uh, the word has been preached faithfully, and so we we believe that the confession is a re- accurate reflection of God's word. So uh, that's my approach: is to focus on the text on Sundays and 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 lead into then uh, the truths that we believe. Now, how did you end up at Faith Vancouver? I was about to go do my PhD overseas and then my supervisor transferred to a different university for a different job. So I had to wait. And while I was waiting, I was pulpit supplying at a church whose minister had left. And as I was pulpit supplying, they were uh, keen on having me become the minister. And I wasn't really interested because of my uh, desire to go overseas. But then I got accepted to a program at Leiden University where they gave me a Canadian supervisor, Michael Haken, and uh, I was able to spend some time in Leiden as well as in Toronto uh, for visits while I did my dissertation at the same time I was pastoring. So I was able to actually do both. So it's truly a story of God's sovereignty bringing all that together for you. Oh, it's, uh, I look back and I actually just cannot believe how uh, gracious and faithful God uh, was to me when it was probably the best possible situation that could have happened to me, and that's what happened. What what kind of encouragement would you give for young men that are considering the pastorate and are trying to figure out um, God's steps in the sense of opening doors, closing doors, and how you kind of work through that in in uh, in throughout your life? For me, the key is 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 having people around you who are going to be honest with you about your gifts, uh, people who are going to be praying for you, uh, people who love you enough to tell you the most truth about yourself. And then also, you know, waiting on the Lord and not snatching and grabbing at things, but waiting for him to give uh, the type of opening where you sense it really is from him in his providential dealings. So young men can be typically quite anxious about things and, and they don't maybe uh, trust enough that the Lord will build his church, that he loves the church more than we do. So if you are God's gift to the church, he will make sure it happens. And if you're not, uh, be prepared to wait until you've been suitably humbled or transformed into the type of man God wants in a pulpit. Is there a particular aspect of church ministry you felt was the most uh that you were unprepared for, that you can give some insight to guys who are working towards that? 
as a young pastor, you'll probably just make a lot of mistakes and there's not much you can actually do about it. You can limit the mistakes by trying to apply wisdom and prayer, but the very nature of being young is you, you, you think something's right, but you end up learning years later it wasn't. And, and I've made several mistakes that I just, at the time it was, they weren't sinful in the sense that I was trying to do something wrong, but it just was a lack of experience. So you just have to be prepared to make mistakes. And, and if you lead a, a, the type of life where you love the people and, and cherish them, they will be much more prepared to accept your your shortcomings when they do happen, and they will happen. So I think that's the key for me is getting people to know you love them so that they can, um, you know, overlook those mistakes that will happen. Mm. Really appreciate you giving us that background as far as who you are and what God's been doing on that journey. I want to kind of turn the, the page of our discussion to the focus of your book um, entitled Knowing Christ. And uh, to the listener, I just want to read a portion of the introduction that was written by J.I. Packer and what he says um, about the book. And this is was really intriguing to me just listening to the words of Packer. He says, um, Have we ever up to now worked our way through any book that fully displays our Savior as the brightest lights in the historic Reformed firmament, having viewed him? And then he says, here is such a book. And he actually says in this, he says, thank you, Mark Jones. You've served us well. That's quite a recommendation from J.I. Packer. I got to believe you were uh, pretty blown away just by that endorsement. Yeah, well, the, but the best part about the whole thing was I, I, I spoke to him on the phone and said, you know, I'd, I'd really be blessed if you had a couple sentences to, to just say for a, a commendation of the book. And he said he'd read it. And I was sitting at my desk right where I am now, actually, and my wife brings in this letter, and it's a written forward, typed forward by J.I. Packer. So he he basically said a, a forward spilled out of his mind, as it were, and uh, I was just tickled pink because he decided to write a forward, and if he decides to write a forward, who am I to say no to J.I. Packer? <laughs> That's so, awesome. Yeah, that was pretty cool. Um, now, you had... Um, and I and I on our uh, Facebook page, I actually put the dialogue between you and Packers are sitting on the park bench. And so you've had some time to interact with him. And obviously the book cover, the the name, it all is is very much an association with Packers own book, Knowing God. Um, was that intentional right from the beginning? It was it wasn't meant to be so explicit and overt that I. I'm trying to say, hey, this is a companion because ultimately his book is a classic uh, and mine's just come out. And I, you know, I have to just accept that, you know, time will tell whether my book is any good or not. So you have to be, you always have to be careful with that type of um, self comparison. So, you know, that I didn't do the cover. That was what Banner did. But I thought that the title would be a, a suitable title for a, a book that, Packer had wanted to write, but never was able to. So uh, given my background and training, I thought, you know, this is just a book I want to write and whatever happens with it happens. So uh, yeah, there is obviously some similarity. Uh, I just took all of his words and changed God with Christ. And uh, that was my book. Uh, <laughs> just kidding. But um, 
but yeah, it was, it was, you know, and, and for me, I, it was a case of sending it to a few people who I really trusted to read. So I, Rosaria Butterfield and, and Dick Gaffin, and that was it for commendations. And I think just having less was more in this instance. Uh, so, you know, we'll see. Uh, so far, I've been really pleased with the reception, um, not just the sales, but just what people have said, how they've been blessed. So I, I couldn't be happier, really. I know that I personally have been very blessed by the book. It really, on many levels, ministers to the soul. Um, I just want to back up just for a few seconds and talk a little bit more about the interaction with you and Packer. Um, I'm a big fan of Packer myself. I'm very dis you know, saddened by the fact that he won't be writing uh, anymore with the loss of his eyesight and the effects there. But if, if we could kind of, as the listeners in this podcast, be a little bird on that bench or in the tree behind you and the, the give and take back and forth, what would you say really um, inspired you or encourages you from Packer and just even that time you had with him um, sharing back and forth? For me, the, the, probably the inspiring thing is uh, just being with a, a person who has walked the Christian life for many years and, and does what appears to be the simple things well, speaks about the simple things and loves the simple things. So praying, um, knowing God, uh, trusting in Christ, uh, it's all so simple. And that's the, the real uh, secret to the Christian life is uh, to get to that place where you just love uh, the basics so much that the rest of your life takes care of itself in many respects. So, you know, I know that's probably not the most insightful answer, but in one respect, it's just the plainness and simplicity of his life in the way he speaks, the way he dresses, lives, everything that that is most impressive. Well, it just seems like that you, you've kind of captured what oozes from him. I know that I picked up Riken's uh, book about his life and the and the biography of of G.I. Packer, and it just really stunned me that the man that we read is really the man who is behind those books. It's not that he's he's two different guys; he's one and the same. And I'm just very encouraged by um, by his, by the example of his life and his faithfulness, um, even though um, he's had to fight a lot of battles for uh, for the uh, Orthodox Christianity. Um, and so, yeah, let's turn to your to the focus of, of, of your book, Knowing Christ. And um, I guess one of my first questions for you is what compelled you to write it? What compelled me was the fact that I'd read a lot of Thomas Goodwin and John Owen, but most of what I've published on Goodwin has been academic and uh, very expensive. And I had so I had these truths in my mind where I thought, hey, God's people need to hear these things. And. Uh, that coupled with the fact that it's just a delightful topic. And there's no real book out there that I was able to read that's been written in, in modern times where it goes through sort of everything, like not just his death, but, you know, resurrection, return, the vision of him. Uh, there's so many, you know, I've tried to really give a, a big picture overview of Christ's life. So there's just a number of things coming together mm. coupled with the desire. In the very beginning of the book, uh, under the on motivation, you say a few things. You say, all of us share guilt in our sinful refusal to know Christ better. And I know you captured me there. I'm, I'm sure you've captured my listeners as well. And yet you continue. You say, 
of all of them, referring to Christ, of all the human desires that he retained as he entered his glorified state in heaven, few exceed his desire to know his people. And what a contrast, his desire to know us and our lack of desire to know him. And it was like from that page forward, you kind of captured me. But you continue yet further, you say, in his heavenly glory, Christ meditates upon his people. He desires not only to know us, but to be with us. And you continue, he desires to be with us because he knows us and demands that one day he will call us to be home with him. And as you kind of unfold that thought, I found myself captivated by the fact that he knows me and yet he still loves me. And yet here he is who's perfect and I don't even a desire to know him as much as I should. And so you really just captured me right from the beginning. Is that something you yourself have wrestled with? Or is it something that maybe as a pastor you've, you've felt of, of the people in the pews? Or where did that come from? It came again from the, the issue of his humanity where I've tried to really zero in on those concerns. And I've thought, you know, when I think of Christ in heaven, according to his human nature, actually having affections that are are real like a, a you know we we have affections that are real and and he does and to think that he thinks about me meditates upon me and wants to be with me based on John 17 and that prayer uh is is so remarkable that i have to then think well what on earth is wrong with me literally what on earth is wrong with me uh where i can't uh sometimes have that same desire now of course the glory of the gospel is just that that he loved us not that we loved him you know his it begins with him and he has the preeminence in all things because he has the greatest love towards uh his creatures so uh in one respect it 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 makes sense in another respect it's still grievous that uh, my heart can be so cold at times towards um such amazing truths but I think, you know, even just that truth, people don't normally think about it uh, as much as they should. So I'm just trying to bring out different truths of Christ's love for us that help people to want to know him more. Hmm. As, as far as that goes in that in that working of saying, OK, there should be this desire to know him better. You go on to define what knowing Christ is and you say knowing Christ is apprehending his person and works as revealed in scripture. And it, it seems like such a, a simple statement, a statement we would find in virtually all of the Reformed confessions, yet it is so, uh, uh, it's such a contrast to the broad evangelical world we live in where everyone wants to know Christ based upon their experience. Yeah. A- and in that uh, tension, um, how, how do you see the, uh, the modern reader viewing that reality that the the way we truly know Christ is apprehending his person and work in contrast with the way I feel about him at this moment. Yeah, that's the, the, the key is to, you know, we're told in Hebrews to fix our eyes upon Jesus, but then we're told, you know, specifically what Jesus did and, and who he is. So, you know, the Bible just doesn't give us any other option, but to, when we um, see Christ, as crucified, like Paul wrote to the Galatians, uh, he's asking them to do that now, uh, and and we're to do that constantly. Is it's no good just saying I'm looking to Christ, but w- what am I looking to 
in Christ, uh, what he's done, who he is, those are questions and facts that you simply cannot divorce from uh, your experience of him. And so God says we're to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and the mind is a major component of our, our worship and love towards him. Is your experience as a professor, as a pastor, as a Christian in today's society, that the general person who proclaims to be a follower of Christ truly doesn't understand the sufficiency of Christ? And if so, why do you think that is in our current culture? I think we 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 do, in a way, understand the sufficiency of Christ, and then we don't. It's not a, I would say for me as a pastor, it's not a either or. It's kind of we, we believe but help our unbelief. Uh, you know, I know my wife, for example, or or people in my church, they really do believe he's sufficient. It's just a case of knowing enough about him to be able to apply that properly each day. Uh, and we're weak, and so we, we don't always apply um, Christ to our lives the way we should. So um, I, I, that's why I think it's a it's a both and where we're weak, but we're not completely weak in the sense that Christ's spirit does cause us to rely upon him and so he's he's interested in having us depend upon him and so he grants us his spirit so that we do that um, it's not just left up to us but that's the good news of the gospel is christ actually takes the um sort of burden on himself to make sure we we depend upon him it's just a case of learning more about who christ is and what he's done to to better apply his sufficiency in our life rather than apply it for the first time. If, if you know what I mean? Absolutely. If uh, in looking at this, this is a little bit of an unfair question, but looking at your book, was there a favorite chapter in writing it? Yeah. The, the epilogue. Mm. Uh, and I was done. <laughs> uh, yeah. You know, I, I kind of, um, some were easier than others uh, just because of, uh, where I've done a lot of reading, you know, there's probably just a few that stick out to me. I, I really like the chapter on the incarnation, uh, Christ's uh, prayers, uh, his humiliation, his transfiguration. Uh, those those probably are the ones that stuck out uh, to me as as truly memorable for for my own soul. I remember uh, as a boy in Sunday school. I remember I had a uh, a teacher he was a he was a great man of god and he and he had a, a real passion for theology and i remember the first time we were sitting in sunday school and he said you know um we have this tendency we think of uh everything jesus did was was as a human that he just automatically was like the best student in class he was uh a perfect in every respect of you know never never struggled to learn uh uh, carpentry he never struggled to like you know whenever he brought a project home it was just immaculate and like you know a piece of fine art and I remember him kind of picking that apart because of the sense that he had to uh, grow in wisdom and in stature and yeah. uh, I remember as a young high school student hearing that for the first time where it really started to resonate with me it changed so much of the way I began to view Christ, not because uh, he wasn't perfect, because obviously he was, but that he was truly human. Yeah. And do you think that is a uh, still a big struggle for the church is dealing with the humanity of Christ? Or do you think it's more on the divinity side? 
I think probably the humanity. I mean, the divinity too. It's there. There, you know, it's 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 hard to grasp both in one person. But certainly, the 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 idea that Christ was awoken morning by morning to be taught by his Father, that you know, he even increased in favor with God. So the one who's perfect uh, somehow grows in in his obedience and and delights the father more and more so even things like that truly boggle one's mind uh and also just when he's when he's hungering in the in the temptation narrative that you know angels have to come and minister to him that's not uh just for show that's a reality where i think in body and soul he needed uh ministering to and so the father sent angels uh, to take care of his body and soul. It wasn't just his body. It wasn't just his soul. But it was him as a human being in need of help. Mm. I, you know, as, as we kind of walk through that and walk land up on the other side, the critical scholars, of course, always trying to make a Jesus in their own image, um, really began to attack the divinity of Christ, and you get look at Al, uh, Albert Schweitzer and guys like him who begin to debunk the earlier uh, critical scholars. But in the end, he comes to the place and he says, "Yeah, Jesus believed he was the Messiah, but he was just wrong." And yeah. <laughs> it seems like so many of our, uh, uh, you know, with Easter coming here soon, and the History Channel and all that will be beginning to put, you know, what did Jesus really say? You know, what did he really think? Who was the real historic Jesus? And there seems to be this dichotomy all the time between the humanity of Jesus and the divinity of Jesus and the attack on both. How can a young uh, guy who's maybe in Bible college or early seminary as he begins to walk through this, is there some help you can give him as he begins to, I don't want to use their balance because it's not about balance, it's about commitment to the divinity and to the humanity, but is there is there some advice you can give him as he begins to work through that? Or even just for the, the, the guy in the pew who says, yeah, I know all this Easter stuff's coming and they're going to be attacking my Lord, how do I work through it? Some advice you can maybe give him. Well, the, the, yeah, the, 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 the issue of Christ's death and resurrection coming up at Easter is, is really a, a time for, for God's people perhaps to be reminded of its uh, fact according to the scriptures. Now, in terms of uh, people denying that and questioning that, you know, I, I, I just uh, I have very little sort of um, patience or or time for that in, in the sense that I don't really involve myself in in that type of apologetic uh, just because I I've come to the place where I used to do that a lot and and for whatever reason I just never really got very far uh, for me my major this is maybe a bit disappointing to someone hearing but for me my major desire is is at Easter to, to get our people who say they believe the resurrection to not only truly understand its implication for their living, but to get them to be basically a resurrection people in how they live. You know, that's, that's for me, the crucial part is if God's people lived in light of the resurrection of Christ as, as they really should are witness to others 
uh, will be that much more powerful and people are going to be won over by that type of witness. Um, not to say we don't make arguments. I've used um, N.T. Wright's 800-page book on some of the history and, and taken some valuable insights from that. But I do want God's people to change the way they live in light of the fact that they've been raised with Christ. And that, for me, is my major emphasis. Hmm, that's beautiful. Um, kind of moving a little bit further in the book, and as you walk through the person of Christ, and what would you say is one of the things you really, if your heart is to get people to understand the power of the resurrection of Christ and, and the truth that, uh, the victory that comes to him, what are maybe some of the um, most misunderstood aspects of the the benefit of being in Christ that you think maybe the the church or or, or those who are claiming to be followers of Christ um, lack in their understanding? I think the point that Christ's resurrection was his body being um, transformed, the same body that, that died was transformed into a real body of flesh and blood still, uh, a glorious body, and that body remains forever, Christ's body. And his face and, and, and heart and toes and, and he even ate after. I emphasize the real fleshliness of the resurrection. And I, I say, you know, that's God's ultimate intent for us is to not only be raised with Christ spiritually in the heavenly places, but to be like Christ physically in terms of um, a body of power filled with the spirit where we will enjoy God's good gifts forever and ever and ever, which will be uh, not just spiritual, but physical. So the, the whole concept of the, the sort of physicality of redemption, which is highlighted in the resurrection of Christ, that for me is, is something that I think people really need to grasp at this time of year. Is there a particular part in the book that maybe you yourself grew a little bit more in understanding? Um, an aspect that maybe as you began to do the research really became blessed in, in learning. Yes. Uh, you know, Augustine, I think he said he, he, he learns as he writes. So a lot of times I'm, I'm writing and then I'm reading and then I'm learning and then I'm writing. And so I'd, I'd come to the transfiguration chapter and I'd never really thought much about the transfiguration, but, after learning and reading on the topic, I was blown away and was so thankful that I got to write on that topic because I, I simply wouldn't have understood what I now know if I hadn't written the book. What was it that jumped out at you as far as the transfiguration? Well, it's the the transfiguration is sort of the flip side of Golgotha. So, so many of the elements that happen at the Mount of Transfiguration their sort of polar opposite takes place at Golgotha, whether it's Christ's white clothes on the mount versus his clothes being stripped and bloodied at Golgotha, whether it is the father saying, this is my son whom I love, versus him turning his face away from his son and Christ crying out, whether it's being surrounded by Moses and Elijah versus being surrounded by two criminals who were hurling insults at him. Uh, you know, there's so many... Um, contrasts between suffering and glory that are brought out, uh, as well as Moses' answered prayer to see God's face and live, 
was answered supremely in the person of Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration. So even after he's been in heaven for, I don't know, how many years, uh, God commands him to come back down to earth so that his prayer made in Exodus 33 could be answered where Moses would not die but live after seeing the face of God. Mm. That's fantastic, yeah. Um, let's turn the page yet again and uh, to something a little more recent with you, which is there's been a lot of d dialogue going on in different reform circles, specifically on this Ligonier statement on Christ. And I know that you have um, written a couple of uh, brief uh, articles and, and critiques on this specific document, and there's much you have to praise for it, and there's also con some concerns you have. So I want to deal with first, what are some of the things you enjoy about the Ligonier Statement on Christ? Uh, well, it's always a good thing to want to defend the truth. I, uh, I applaud them for that. And, you know, even at the last, uh, I think, Affirmation Denial 25, they do speak about seeing Christ face to face, which is a, a sort of more clear uh, emphasis on the beatific vision that we will see him face to face. And that's language that uh, I don't think we find explicitly in the Westminster Confession. So in terms of saying something new, there, there was that. Uh, the, the problem, as I pointed out in my posts, is there's just too, many, too much language that's not clear, or I would say even sloppy at times. Uh, I think it's probably a little bit Im imbalanced because they, um, R.C. Sproul talks about the preface wanting to um, connect Christ's person and work and saying that you need both to understand uh, his person and work. But then when speaking about his work, it, it basically talks about justification and, and that's it. There's very little on other applied benefits. So, you know, if you're going to go into his work, you got to go the whole way. And if not, you know, I'd, I'd probably just stay with what Christ did before getting into how that applies to us. Uh, you know, there's a number of other issues, that even in the wording of the creed and, and things that might have been put in that were left out. Uh, and then there's the bigger question of whether, you know, it's a good idea for for them to be writing a creed when it can't really have any binding authority upon ministers. So it, it basically ends up being, a, you know, advice. Uh, you know, those are just some of the some of the issues. So you're, you're one of your because one of the biggest pushbacks I have experienced in this dialogue is who cares? A parachurch. So what? They wrote it. What's the big deal? And you just nailed it when you said, but it has no binding um, uh, on the on the minister. And therefore, it really has no teeth, therefore. And um, is there any other concerns that you have of a parachurch organization writing creeds and confessions other than the fact that it, it, it is basically it's teethless? I, it's basically, even if they are trying to defend the truth, that the problem is, is that the, the creed has already been used in church services and suggested to be used in church services. Uh, so you kind of have what Carl Truman called a brand uh, making its way into uh, the church. You know, it's it's about Ligonier, this creed. It's uh, And I, I kind of shy away from... From that, if we got a group of theologians together today, a good representative from Reformed denominations all over North America, which who are not attached in any formal way, uh, that would probably be a bit easier. 
um, on me personally as a, as a minister, and uh, we would know who wrote the creed. I still don't really know who's responsible for what, whereas, you know, the men at Westminster, we know their names. Uh, so it's just a kind of, it's a, it's a context thing. And again, you know, Ligonier, what they do well, whether it's Table Talk, a magazine my wife uh, reads frequently, uh, or other things, I have absolutely no problem with that, and I'm grateful for their defense of the truth there. I just can't really understand how the document they produced was A, so poor, and why so far there's no real willingness to say, hey, maybe we could clean this thing up a little bit. Hmm. I, I want to ask you a question that um, I usually somehow finds its way into our podcast, which is the question that R. Scott Clark asks in his book, Recovering the Reformed Confessions. The question comes up about the importance of writing modern confessions and creeds. What's your position on that? Is is that a necessary thing that the church be producing modern confessions and creeds for the church of today? Yeah, this is a, a tricky one. I have friends that go both ways. Um, some don't think we have the theologians to be able to produce a creed that's really going to better Westminster. Uh, and, you know, it, in a way, after reading the Ligonier Creed, we I don't think we have produced anything that's better. Uh, so you can kind of understand uh, one aspect. I I think that, you know, even the divines, they were producing not just the Westminster Creed, but there were um, confession. There was lots of other creeds and confessions that were written uh, after that in the 1650s. So it was quite common in the 17th century. We've shied away from that. I, I could see possibly a, a, a venue and realm in which that could happen, but I would I would want it to be, you know, a, a distinct act of the church where Napark ministers, for example, under authority um, are writing it. I, I just don't know if I see it really happening. So um, I'm not in principle opposed to it, but I know people just think it's probably not a good idea. Okay, okay. Um, let's turn it back a little bit between your book and the topic we're talking about right now, which is the importance of, of creeds and confessions. Um, which confession do you, have you, did you find yourself reverting to the most on the topic of, of Christ and the doctrine of Christ? Um, the Westminster, or was it maybe um, the Heidelberg, or uh, just you found yourself going between all, uh, a variety of them? I think that uh, for, for me... I don't really kind of pick between, I think Chalcedon needs some interpretation and Westminster gives it that because the Lutherans and the Catholics also hold to Chalcedon, but they take it in different directions. So, you know, Chalcedon becomes the, the, the point of departure. And then you, we have our reformed confessions that look at the Christology of Chalcedon and make their, their sort of application or interpretation of it. And, and Heidelberg is great. Uh, even some things in the canons of Dort, Belgic. Uh, so it's just a case of, of of taking everything that you like from those and, and running with it. And and to me, it's uh, they're complementary more than you know which one do I pick. Hmm. And in the, in the in the aspect of the Heidelberg versus the Westminster and the the tension that many people sometimes draw is one, the Heidelberg being a little bit more devotional, whereas the Westminster being a little more systematics is it, do you feel that tension at all? Or do you, do you think that's a little overplayed? 
it, it's all context. You know, Heidelberg, what are they trying to do? What, what, what context does Westminster find themselves in? Uh, a lot of it's driven by the context. Uh, the Westminster divines, if you look at their writings, very, very devotional, very. Uh, so I think, you know, you, you're kind of, it's apples and oranges in one respect of what they're trying to do, when they're trying to do it, um, why, who, there's so many other questions that have to be asked. And uh, it all depends then on what your view of devotional is and and, and stuff like that too. So uh, it's, I think it's a tricky question to really um, ask and it's probably not best answered by saying one is devotional and one is scholastic because um, it's just not the case uh, as far as I'm uh, aware. What about the use of confessions and creeds for your family? Is that something you regularly do and if so what does that look like for, for guys that are trying to figure out how to bring the creeds into their family worship uh, and for the benefit of discipling their children? For me, I use a, a, a more of a kid's catechism because my children are still young. So uh, we've done we've done that. So we don't we don't get we haven't yet arrived at the Westminster Shorter Catechism. You know, my five year olds can have a pretty good grasp of of who God is based upon this um, more child friendly catechism. But I imagine that uh, someday soon we'll be graduating. Uh, but to me, it's a, a case of uh, a good balance between them knowing the content of the Bible and then them knowing the theology of the Bible. So I, I think the catechisms give us the theology and the Bible content is also really important for them to know. There, there definitely has been a resurgence in confessionalism, and it's kind of exciting on many fronts. Yet there still seems to be a lot of uh, people that are opposed to the idea of a creed. They'll say things like, I have no creed but the Bible. Have uh, you experienced any of that in your ministry? And if so, how did you kind of step through those landmines as you were working with uh, with uh, the congregation you have now or even past congregations? It was maybe a little bit of an issue in my church, not much. Uh, but once you establish that, creeds are biblical in terms of the Bible has has creeds and then you you know you sort of just reason through with people um, why they're important and why having no creed is a type of creed anyway I think just patient instruction over the course of, of a couple um, months and years is is really the only way to deal with these types of issues because they're not easily solved in one conversation or debate or lesson you've, you've kind of got to get people's whole thinking about the church church history, the Bible, all of that reorientated. Well, Mr. Jones, I greatly appreciate the time you gave us today. And um, I just want to thank you again for taking the time, um, not only with us, but to sit down and write Knowing Christ. It was a, a book that has greatly impacted me. It's a book that I'm going to definitely be encouraging my listeners to grab a hold of uh, my congregation as well here in Michigan and just uh, the blessing and benefit it has had. And as uh, J.I. Packer has said, uh, we thank you for providing this because it, it draws us back to knowing Christ who, um, who knows us and loves us despite knowing us. And so thank you for, for your work and your effort in, in providing this tool for the church. Um, and again, just want to say thank you for the time you've given us 
uh, today as we've discussed a, a variety of topics and even got to hit some of the Ligonier controversy that has uh, erupted <laughs> recently around you. So yeah. thanks oh, again. Uh, yeah, thanks for having me on and uh, I appreciate being able to talk about these things. All right, thanks, thanks, Mark. All right, take care. Thanks for listening to the Confessional Collective Podcast. For more information and resources, please visit confessionalcollective.com and be sure to like our Facebook page.